Hi, my name is Aksa Rashid. I'm joined here today by my friend Kieran Wakar, and today we're going to be exploring the topic of male victims of sexual violence and exploring a little bit about the difficulties that they experience um, in talking about their experiences with violence um, in a society that often forgets that males can also experience sexual violence. Um, And so this is obviously, you know, like an issue that a lot of people might have come in contact with, have heard about um, vaguely, but it is not a dominant uh, discussion when discussing sexual violence, whether that be like in our universities, in our school curriculums, um, according to the Association of Alberta Sexual Assault Services, however, a lot of research suggests that 10 to 20% of all males will experience some form of sexual abuse or assault in their lives. But our cultures value a lot of invulnerability and the denial of pain for men, um, and they kind of see these traits as essential qualities of manliness. And We also see how guys are usually simply just not allowed to admit that they've been sexually assaulted or abused. Um, And they also fear being blamed for their own attack um, out of the fear of being told that they might not be manly enough to protect themselves, to prevent it. A lot of male victims um, have been told that people uh, blame them and tell them that they wanted it and um, are kind of confused for reasons why they wouldn't enjoy sexual encounters. And so for that reason, many male survivors survive traumatic experiences alone. And so my problem statement for this podcast that I want to explore is essentially asking what societal circumstances, um, and that can be, you know, really broad and also really intimate and interpersonal, um, but what kinds of circumstances lead to men feeling less likely to speak up about their sexual violence experiences. Uh, Sexual assault being defined as any kind of sexual contact that is against a person's will or without consent. And I'm going to introduce my friend Karen Wakar, uh, who's going to talk a little bit about um, herself and the work that she does at her nonprofit Heart Woman to Grow before uh, we jump into some of this discussion. Karen, take it away. Hi, everyone. Happy to join y'all. Um, really honored. It's actually kind of funny because um, Uxa and I have been on some podcasts in the past, so it feels like this is like a very familiar thing for us, <laughs> which is really nice. Um, yes, my name is Karen McCarr. I use she, her pronouns. I am the communicator, communications coordinator at Heart. Um, I've been there since right after the pandemic started, so I've been there since 2020. Um, yeah, I do a a whole host of things i support with communications in terms of our advocacy work i support with trainings research um a whole host of things i'm involved some of the coalition building we're doing right now but heart is a organization run by entirely muslim run by run by and for muslims working on issues of reproductive justice and gendered violence in muslim communities um we love our acronyms there so we actually heart is acronym which stands for health education, advocacy, research, and training. So through those um, different arms of work we do, we attack the issue of gendered violence and hope to build a world that is in line with reproductive justice. So that's a brief um, introduction. I'm really honored to be here with all of y'all. Thank you, Karen, for that introduction. 
And so when we're talking about sexual violence um, and for male victims specifically, I think it's important for us to take a look at the way that men are expected to discuss sex in the first place um, and thinking about the importance of sex for men, um, thinking about like the ways that like our pop culture and, you know, our culture in general um, views sex as like a rite of passage for men as a point of contact, um, a point of, you know, connection for men. Also as like a point of confirmation of their sexuality, you know, like seeing that when men talk about uh, sexual activity that they've engaged in, um, it kind of serves as like a confirmation of like them not being gay and things like that. And so thinking before we can like jump to like how men are able to disclose sexual violence or even, you know, talk about sexual violence in the first place, like thinking about how men are expected to talk about sex, um, how do you see that influencing and also like did i guess leading to more difficulties in how they can make that jump to talking about sexual violence and like those difficult experiences yeah definitely that's a really important question so thank you for that and thank you for the topic of this podcast i think it's something we do need to talk about as well because i think i mean there's obviously the narrative like men are trash but like we also need to think beyond it too like you know like what is i know bell hooks talks a lot about like like the pain that men also feel mm-hmm. uh, because of masculinity and i think it's a really hard thing to do but it's a really important thing to do so i commend y'all for doing this podcast and the work y'all are doing in class but um yeah it's really interesting it's actually interesting because heart is just coming out with a book this year called the sex talk book a muslim's guide to um healthy sex and relationships and in it there's a lot of different things about like you know like gender relationships sex etc etc um also like thinking beyond just the gender binary of like men woman a woman um and acknowledging the fact that gender is a lot larger than that and a lot lot more expansive than that but one thing that islam actually really centers in um in in talking about sex is the idea of mutual pleasure and so there is like a really large and like long tradition of like talking about sex having conversation about sex, centering female pleasure and centering like mutual pleasure. And it was really interesting because I just did a focus group recently about it and it was with Muslim age college students and it was very new information to most, if not all students. And it's interesting because it makes me think about how we've been conditioned to think about sex in general as something about power, of control, of taking. If you think about the language we use around sex, it's like, I hit that, I smash that. It's a contest. It's like you conquered someone and you got them to you got them to do what you wanted to do versus when i think about how we talk about the sex talk book in islam which historically and like if you look at the, the, the actual text themselves which can differ from the lived realities of many folks mm-hmm. it's a lot it's a lot different experience and so i guess what i'm trying to say is when i think about your question i'm thinking a lot about power and control and the ways it shows up even in their most intimate spaces so like if sex is one of the most intimate things you can do for some folks how is power and control showing up in those spaces? How is it preventing us from even like, honestly, even having good sex, but even understanding what we like ourselves and what other folks like for themselves. So I guess I'm just thinking a lot about power and control. That was really interesting to think about. Yeah, to think about the dynamics of power. And obviously, you know, like it is different across different demographics, um, across females versus males. I guess I'm more interested in how you see that coming up specifically 
for men like those narratives around power and control um for the ways that men are expected to you know have sex by a certain age like um expected to you know like engage in activities that make them like not look gay and how like talking about sex and talking about like their desire to have sex like um kind of like leads to that confirmation for that for 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 them not being gay um yeah i'm just wondering if you can talk more about that yeah definitely i think there's a lot of signaling um and there can be lots of shame and stigma and there can also be a lot of signaling to prove that like you've done this thing so that you can be like as you're saying like i'm not gay i'm a man and this is what men are supposed to do um men are supposed to take men are supposed to grab men are supposed to have sex in this way which totally erases so many things it erases the fact that some people don't want to have sex in that way. It raises the fact that some men don't want to do hookup culture. It raises the fact that some men might be asexual or have experienced sexual violence or mm-hmm. just like don't want to have sex like that. Maybe that's like for their religion or their personal beliefs or they're trying to be safe like in terms of like STDs and STIs or whatever else or mm-hmm. you know they don't want to get someone pregnant if they're having like like IRDs of heteronormative sex and things like that. And so there's all that. But also, I think one thing that's really important to highlight, too, is that it ignores the fact that men can also be survivors. Because when we position men to be only takers, grabbers, people with power, we ignore the fact that, like, they can also be survivors. Um, and even though we know the vast num- the majority of survivors are women, um, that is also something that we don't we don't get to talk about. So a lot of people end up holding a lot of this trauma and not even be able to name it because we have this idea that men have to want a certain thing, which is honestly very, like, limiting in the ways it imagines the possibilities for masculinity show up yeah and i'm thinking about that last sentence you said about it being limiting and how masculinity show up and how you know like we we talk about hegemonic masculinity and like these ideas of like um you know doing gender and right because like gender is something that is done Mm -hmm. um and thinking about like how what is seen as manly is seen as is basically just like anything that is like not feminine like mm-hmm. you, to be manly like you got to make sure that you're not doing something that is feminine or girly or womanly whatever adjective you want to use and so i'm thinking about like the ways that especially like in the last couple of years like with the me too movement and um you know that being like the most popular um hashtag on our social media to talk about sexual violence and how it seems like you know on my end like it seems like that has been gendered um as female and there's been like little discussions here and there about like you know the other side of the me too movement like for men um and so i'm just thinking about how maybe how do you see sexual violence as being gender as being part of that doing gender which i'm like saying right now with quotation marks um how do you see that as being like a gendered concept like maybe even in pop culture um and just the ways that we talk about it loosely um and how do you see that as like making that harder for men to speak up on because they don't see it as manly like Mm -hmm in their in their eyes because gender is not being done in their eyes like that yeah absolutely it's a huge part it's a huge part because one thing we talk about a lot is like people like some of their my co-workers a lot of them are social workers is like you know hurt people hurt people if you're working with people you're working with trauma and when we don't name the fact that like hegemonic masculinity is part of that trauma like it's part of what conditions you not to feel 
and experience the, the feminine that we all hold because masculine the ideas of masculinity and femininity are fluid ideas of gender is fluid like it isn't just men and women like it is so much more, as i said so much more expansive than that and so when we see the world through only this hegemonic lens it means that there is this narrative that men cannot be sexually assaulted because men can never not have power and ignores right. the fact that like that power is constructed like as you mentioned like we do gender like that power is not inherent it is created through society in the ways we all continuously reinforce it through gender, or through by doing through doing gender, and so, yeah, I'm just thinking about that. I'm thinking about the ways in which we assume this power is innate, that they're strong, that they're masculine, yeah. that they'll immediately have it, but in reality, that's not how it works. Like, we can experience violence, and yeah. that is that is harm, that is hurt. And when we think about life through this power, we don't when we miss the power analysis. We miss the harm. Like, we have to have that power analysis to do the work. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I honestly, I think that power analysis is so important to talking about all of this because, yeah, because you see the men... At, if you see men as being, like, inherently, like, you know, like, those adjectives that were used, like, power, like, grabbing, like... um like hungry for sex, et cetera, et cetera, then you can't even move beyond that. Like you can't even move beyond acknowledging that these experiences exist outside of the sphere that we're used to seeing it. And victimization from from males, um, it happens on, you know, like several levels. It happens on a personal level, on institutional level, on a social level, like on a macro level. Um, and there's social costs to speaking up for men that obviously there's social costs for all survivors. Like there's social costs, uh, like survivors disclosing their experiences is never an easy process. Um, but for male victims, I think it's unique in that there's a social cost like amongst their social groups, mm-hmm. um, with their little like, f- like their little like spaces of fratriarchies and, um, you know, like all male spaces where, you know, they'll be labeled as weak and feminine and have the inability, like be labeled as like having an inability to defend themselves. And there is a loss of face, which we talk about as being like the image of the self, which like depends on the rules and values of a society um, and the situation that that interaction is kind of um, inherited in. And so that sense of face obviously is very important for men to be able to, you know, connect with one another and to form friendships and things like that. Um, And I think it's unique just thinking about male friendships in the first place. Um, (laughs) You know, obviously, like, as two females, um, like, things that we think about, like, amongst us like our female friendships like i feel like we wouldn't be out here at least amongst our friendships that we have mm-hmm. i don't feel like i could see us being out here like analyzing like what would happen what social costs would happen if one of us were to disclose like mm-hmm. um experiences of sexual violence because and obviously you know like not to, like that's not like a statement to generalize like all female friendships all male friendships um anything like that but I just, from our female friendships, like, I've felt more um, comfortability with, like, intimacy and, like, centering, you know, feelings and, like, you know, the emotions and 
because women are socialized in our society kind of to be like therapists, Mm -hmm. which we talked about in our class as well. Um, We're socialized to like listen to one another, right? Mm -hmm. And so for men to be in friendships where that's not as common um, and friends are often the first places where people disclose experiences of sexual violence and abuse, Mm -hmm. how do you see these male friendships and maybe like difficulties in initiating intimacies as feeding into this culture of denying pain and vulnerability for men, um, which in turn, you know, makes it harder for them to disclose these experiences. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that we said is that like, you know, like I think there's a lot of work to be done around like disclosure and the ways in which we respond to folks when they disclose in general across genders. Like, I think... I think there's a lot of like stigma in every single like area of the United States and the world, honestly, which is very, very unfortunate. Um, but to answer your question a little bit more directly, I think, I mean, these hegemonic ideas of masculinity, these hegemonic ideas of power and the way power circulates, it means that there is like different like, consequences for different folks when they disclose, mm-hmm. which can make it a lot harder to like. There is still a dominant narrative that women are the only ones who experience sexual violence when that's just not true. Mm-hmm. And so when you're the only person who, when you're the man who experiences sexual violence, you might think you're the only one. Who are you going to talk to? Who do you experience? Like, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's that narrative, first of all. But also, like, the ideas of what you're talking about, like, towards the end of your, your question, like, I'm thinking about the ways in which, um, like, ascribing to this idea of hegemonic masculinity also means you can't feel your emotions because emotions are gendered female and emotions are weak. And so being hurt is weak. Being taken advantage of is weak because that's what you do to women, which, one, erases, devalues the, like, harm and, like, the severity of violence against women. And, like, it makes it seem as something that is, like, is, like, ought to happen or, like, will happen because if you're a woman, you're a target. So then it devalues like the pain and suffering women experience and if we're talking about the binary like it also means that men the pain and violence men experience is erased and so it doesn't help anyone it, hurt, it hurts us all like it, it literally doesn't do anyone any good but it is a dominant narrative that we all subscribe to when we do gender the way you were describing yeah i think you're so correct in saying and coming back to how much work needs to be done around disclosure to begin with And it is really sad that victimization, the the term victim itself, the term survivor, like the language that we use to describe um, men's behaviors as victims and, you know, disclosures of sexual violence and assault, it is all coded as feminine. And so I guess I'm left even thinking about the ways that even if men feel like they have those homosocial friendships to to disclose this kind of information to to feel like comfortable enough um with their emotions and their feelings to talk about this that the language itself might feel unfamiliar you know for them to talk about amongst their friendships yeah, yeah. definitely i think, oh. I think we, we gotta close a little bit soon because um, oh. we're heading towards the end of time but oh okay you can just on that statement maybe respond. yeah just facts just facts (laughs) yeah well thank you for listening to our podcast there is so much more to say so much more more to say and 
I'll just leave this at that. Thank you.